All right, and welcome to the Rory's Nitro podcast, the show that rips up the buy rates and TV ratings and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, joined once again by the Doctor Amongst Men, Duncan Joyce. How's things, Duncan? Hello, Lee. It's very good to be back. I'm sorry it's been so long, but uh, settling into this new job has taken up a lot of my time. What new job are you at at the moment, Duncan? I'm an apprentice software developer uh, working for a mass spectronomy company. That is far more technologically advanced than anything I will ever know in my lifetime. So congratulations. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I've made things that live on the internet now. Well, I suppose as a podcaster, I do that all the time. But... <laughs> I was about to say so have I, but it doesn't sound that impressive when I explain what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, I'm actually going to take a back seat and Duncan is going to take over and we're going to reverse roles. Duncan, do you want to tell everybody what the plan for today is? Well, we've reached the end of a timeline here for the first time on the podcast, so I thought it would be suitable to celebrate it with a little retrospective episode going over the timeline as a whole for TNA versus WWE. Um, because it, it's it's been wild this time. I I don't know how what your thoughts are on what we've seen on the podcast over. Well, it's been three years now, I think, since we first dug into the January fourth one. I know, honestly, when you sent me the list of things to talk about, there's things on there that I legitimately do not remember happening. Um, but I think my I guess initial thoughts are there's been far more good than bad. I have thoroughly enjoyed this timeline with you. Um, when Raw kicked into three hours, it became a little bit of a drag for, for the TV, but the pay-per-views especially have been a real highlight for me. Yep, I've really loved the pay-per-views uh, during this time, and TNA will go into it in further detail as we go through the categories we're going to discuss, but their in-ring certainly didn't dip quite in the way that I was expecting uh, considering who was in charge. Yeah, so in in order to celebrate us completing this timeline, us going over Raw and Impact head-to-head on Monday nights, we're going to do a little, I guess, quasi-award show here. And in celebration of Rob Van Dam's very curious nickname for Hulk Hogan, I thought it'd be appropriate to call them the Hulkies. The Hulkies, that is brilliant. And in the award show theme, and since we're having a bit of a, I guess a celebration episode here, I have decided not only are you going to be the main man driving it, but I've ditched the coffee and I'm a few uh, beers in for this one. So it's going to be a fun time. <laughs> oh, magic. <laughs> I, I'm going as Australian as you like, and I am on the 4X Summer Bright Lager with lime. It is delicious. Wow, cool. Um, it's it's half past ten in the morning here and I've got to drive all the way to Wakefield for my friend's 30th, so uh, I am very much not on the booze. I've um, I've just wrapped up football for 2019. We're in post-season cycle. Um, we've had six weeks of training and today was the first game of that cycle and it was the last thing we did. Um, it was about 35 degrees and even just stood on the bench. I am bright red and burnt and we won 4-0, so I've got all the reason to kick back and enjoy. Sweet. Well, let's, let's kick off our postseason cycle, I guess. <laughs> let's do it. Um, so, I want to kick off not with an award, but just 
a, a quick discussion of some of the overarching trends that we saw over the course of this period. Um, so for me, one of the things that stood out, TNA being the aggressor in this situation, they had a pretty big turnover in talent. Um, going back, so putting these awards together had me going over my notes pretty meticulously. And because like you, Lee, some of these things I can't, I have no memory of happening. And it's weird going over it as a whole to think about some of the things that have collectively happened during this time. And TNA especially, it's amazing to think of some of these wrestlers that they used that disappeared pretty quickly. Um, So we had Kiyoshi, Consequences Creed, a.k.a. Xavier Woods, Lashley and Crystal, your feature presentation, Sean Morley, Mm -hmm. Sean Waltman, Awesome Kong, Dr. Stevie and Raven, Christopher Daniels, Bubba the Love Sponge, (laughs) The Nasty Boys, (laughs) Jimmy Hart, Brother Runt, Tyson Tomko, and Rhino all appeared and disappeared at some point during our timeline. That is crazy. So TNA, it is, yeah. It um, it kind of reminds me of the early, like the you know the weekly pay per view days of TNA, with some of those names there just popping in and out for a cup of coffee in the big time. Ooh yeah! <laughs> Nobody, of course, had the staying power of the Flying Elvises. Oh, some good stuff. Well, I think like a few of the people you mentioned, like obviously Christopher Daniels was a big part of the early TNA, but even Rhino, Sean Waltman. Um, a lot of these guys were in and out in the in the weekly pay-per-view days as well. Um, Sean Waltman actually had a really good ladder match with AJ in very, very early TNA. Mm, yeah, um, I suppose he was out the door at WWE only just prior to when things were kicking off. So, yeah, um, that was the first time that I realised uh, post-WWE acquiring WCW that oh that there's there are still actual wrestling companies af- outside of WWE because Waltman and Scott Hall just like disappeared and as a kid I was thinking oh well they they're just like wrestling or whatever WWE is gonna bring them back eventually and then I found I don't know it must have been like Power Slam or one of those other wrestling magazines and there was a picture of them dressed very differently to how they were dressed in WWE in another promotion and I I guess that was TNA. I'm like, oh, right, they're, they're, they're still wrestling. They're, yeah. they're not just benched by WWE. <laughs> In fairness, Waltman probably would have had a longer run had his film career not taken off. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, another big thing that we saw out of both companies, really, was there was lots of trading off nostalgia. Yeah. Now, this is really pretty obvious from TNA's part because... Hulk Hogan is taking over as the man in charge. Eric Bischoff's his right-hand man. Um, With him came a lot of Hulkamania tour signees from that tour of Australia he did did at the back end of 2009. But WWE, they were giving a lot of people their last sort of hurrah Mm. during this time as well. This is the last time we'd see The Undertaker full-time. This is the last time we'd see Shawn Michaels wrestle until he got some blood money waved in front of his nose. 
this was the comeback of Bret Hart. If you think back to that January 4th Raw when Bret came back, all of those signs were pretty much either fluorescent green DX or hot pink Bret Hart. Um, and so, yeah, WWE were just as guilty of this as TNA, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think you've got, like, you sort of got two parts of that because the first part you mentioned about the Hulk Hogan sort of world tour, I think really led into what you talked about first with the turnover of talent and TNA. I don't think there would have been such a high turnover if Hulk wasn't given so much power to bring in so many of his buddies. And um, I, I think, like... In a very short burst, that can be good for the product because you feel like you're getting your AJs, your Samoa Joes to a lesser extent. He was away for a long while. Um, Your X-Division guys that are really giving you the awesome wrestling. But then it is nice to see some of these guys pop up now and again. It's just not great to have them slotted into upper mid-card main event spots. Um, On the other side of the channel, the Bret Hart thing's really fascinating to me because I mentioned on one of these shows we did a while back that... Brett kind of got me in for my last hurrah of watching wrestling right before I checked out for for about four or five years. Um, the Bret Hart return was one of those things that, you know, I was I stopped watching and still read. Um, I, was, I was a member of PW Insider for years, even after I'd stopped watching, and I used to read and listen to the occasional audio show on there. And when I heard all about the Brett stuff, I checked back in, and I, I watched that Raw, and I followed along for a month or two. But the way they booked his WrestleMania match was kind of the end of it for me. So, I mean, this is something that's still current carrying on to this day but it's like the law of diminishing returns they can use these legends to get someone to put their eyes back on the product but then if they don't do a good job with the product it's kind of not worth the money they spend on them yeah this is a pretty strange period really because it seemed like i don't know i know brett's a big name but because he can't wrestle it kind of felt like they were scraping the barrel in terms of people they could that could be the big comeback Obviously, that would change with Rocky coming back the year after this. But it's just like, is this how you really want to move the needle here? Obviously, it worked with you, and it probably did work with a lot of other long-time fans out of intrigue. Like, we never thought we'd see Brett on WWE television again. But then the execution of what they did with him was... Would anybody really be interested in that? I certainly didn't want to see Brett wrestle, and... This will come up a, a bit later down the line, but given his WrestleMania match, I think it's a it's in their best interest not to have him wrestle. Fantasy booking hat on. I think really the best thing they could have done with him would be to sort of resurrect that old Ric Flair, Vince McMahon storyline and, and have him involved in the brand split somehow. I think of all the people you can believe having control would really irritate Vince McMahon. Bret Hart would be pretty high on the list. Um, I know it, it can be done poorly and it can be done great, but like a short-term storyline similar to when Austin got control in 99 could have been something quite entertaining and not overexposed Brett and had people wanting him gone. Mm, yeah. It's interesting you say that because right... We're just right as we're checking out, about a month or two later, Brett is going to become the general manager of Raw. Uh, interesting. And then he's he's going to get written out by the Nexus attacking him or something. Um, so they did go to that well, just perhaps a bit too late. Like the genie was out of the bowl after WrestleMania. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess we we kind of saw that with the golf clap reception that he got in London. Like, oh yeah, it's Brett. Yeah, yeah. I was so furious then. <laughs> um, on the other end of the scale, uh, 
aside from relying on nostalgia, we saw a, a lot of stop-start and jittery pushes for up-and-comers. Um, so TNA, overall, I feel they did a better job of utilising newer talent as opposed to WWE, but still, eventually, you saw the wheels fall off. I'm thinking in particular of the Pope, uh, Generation Me, those kind of guys, they got the big push, brother! And then it just kind of faltered at the end and they reverted back to more established names like Rob Van Dam and Jeff Hardy. I think history's littered with great examples of people being pushed to the cusp of the main event and then losing their title match and it never quite feeling the same again. Pope, to me, is a classic example of that. Had they actually bitten the bullet and put the belt on him in his feud with AJ, I think they could have had a real genuine main event star. But by putting the brakes on and then obviously injury played a part as well, which you can't help, but I felt like his momentum was likely never going to get back to where it was at that point again. No, I agree. Um, he, he was certainly, even in the build-up to his title match, they didn't really do anything with him. He disappeared with some kind of injury angle after against all odds, you know, this big star-making moment for him, winning this one-night tournament, and then, because his match isn't until lockdown, like, oh, we'll just get him off TV for ages. No mention of him at all during lock uh, during Destination X of a TV around the time. It's not until the impact after Destination X when they suddenly realised, oh yeah, Pope's number one contender. And that kind of spoiled it a bit for me. Uh, on the other side of things, WWE had a very... Uh, a very particular case of, you know, a, trying to have the championship make a wrestler as opposed to the wrestler making the championship in Jack Swagger cashing in his money in the bank. Yeah, and that was a case of, that was the the exact opposite where they didn't have the momentum behind a guy and they thought they'd try and force it anyway. It's weird, you know, and, and this is obviously going way off topic and probably I don't want to delve too deeply into it, but it's weird how many guys over the years haven't been ready for the belt that they've forged on with and how many guys have and they've backed off on it. It's crazy to me sometimes that they can't just read what's going on and run with it. Like, I guess the, the example of it going right was Kofi this year was definitely ready for that run with the belt and they actually, they saw it and they they did it but there's been so many times when they've just backed off and the guys have never recovered yeah for a company who very much oh well you know there's no off season it's so hard to write storylines because they never ever end they're very poor at being reactive in terms of following people's interests and uh, you know catering to what's going on in the scene overall I think yeah we're still seeing that today Something that we're not seeing today, thankfully, is women's wrestling being in the absolute shitter. <laughs> yes, it was. Oh, my God. How many one to two minute matches? How many ten women tags where only two people got to wrestle legally? How many embarrassing storylines? How many demeaning gimmick matches did we see during this time frame? Oh my god. I would be interested to see what the total actual bell to bell match time was on all the women's matches we watched because I oh. it's got to be like less than half an hour across both companies, I reckon. It was bad. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the, the amount of women yeah. they put into these matches, it's like, I know, we've only got two minutes. Why don't we try and put ten people into the match instead of two? That meets our quota, you know, diversity. There we go. We're using everyone. Everyone gets a payday. It's <laughs> not as if, you know, we're, we're conditioning people to not care about them. No. That was absolutely one of the most irritating things about this time frame for me. We've got Gail Kim there. They've got Michelle McCool there. They have some sequence of wrestling in these absolutely useless matches that is actually like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see more of that. And then nothing comes of it. I'm just like, every other show I found myself screaming, just let them wrestle for 10 minutes. It'll be fucking class. I know. I, I This is one of them weird things in this day and age, right? Where whenever WWE try and celebrate the fact that they do have more equality than ever and give the women a better shake than ever, and people try and shout them down on Twitter and like, oh, well, TNA had the knockouts and this and that. And I'm like, yeah, but all these other companies did this same bullshit too. Like, if WWE is going to give these women good money and good t- TV time and the ability to wrestle and book them back based on ability, then I don't give a shit if they pat themselves on the back once in a while. Just let them. It's better than the alternative. I know, yeah, because even if it is perhaps not the best method of doing it, it is still women's stars that are getting the spotlight through this. And then, you know, at least you have some sort of platform or baseline to improve things. Um, I remember getting in an argument with someone in particular, back when Jarrett used to run TNA in 2016 or whenever it was, you know, when he was still, like, trying to make GWF a thing or GFW a thing. And um, somebody's push fell off a cliff in Impact at the time. I'm like, oh, surprise, surprise. Somebody falls off a cliff during TNA when Jeff Jarrett's running the company. Because both Jarrett's blatantly don't care about women's wrestling. And some reply guy was like, Oh, you did this, this, and this, and the knockouts were revolutionary. I'm like, well, yeah, okay, there was some really good wrestling that came out of it eventually, but was it really that influential on the rest of the wrestling industry as a whole? The the kind of, the state of wrestling that we got during this time uh, is kind of indicative that no, it wasn't really. Um, awesome Kong and Gail Kim had an absolutely stellar rivalry, but all that came of it was WWE snatched up Gail to harm TNA, basically, and then the standard declined again, and, you know, it, it, if TNA's early knockouts division had the influence people claimed it it had online, it wouldn't have been until... 2015 for us to get this big focus on women's wrestling in mainstream companies I think. I agree completely and I think I, I like the the current crop of girls in WWE probably just suffer the same fate that a lot of the indie darlings do when they get to WWE and that you get to the main roster and your style is nuded a little bit and the girls probably haven't had the years on the indies to build up that cult following and have those couple of really strong high spots that keep them going through the poor booking so um you have to you have to say they get the same shake as the dudes do for the most part these days. Mm, yeah. Um, so 
With us being in the middle of WrestleMania season for the most part of our timeline, we saw the brand extension get thrown out of a window on so many occasions. And they didn't even partic- like particularly special moments to do it. It was just like, oh, Vince McMahon's going to have a gauntlet match. Here's Drew McIntyre from the other brand just because. Wild card rule. And yeah, exactly. And there was one occasion in particular where Michelle McCool and Layla came in and did a run-in and the commentary team were like, what? The SmackDown people on Raw? What is going on? <laughs> like, we've had people from SmackDown for weeks on end now. Why are you so shocked at this? The first few shows we watched, not only was I not certain there was an actual brand extension, but I had no clue who was on what show for several shows. Um, <laughs> the, hi- the true highlight of the brand extension ineptitude for me, though, was Swagger winning the belt, the SmackDown world title, and having to do a quick job on Raw before leaving. <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah. That happens. Oh, do you know, they they were very good at doing that whenever an opportunity came up due to an injury or something, that would always happen. So, like, 2006, when Batista pulled his back out and then tore his tricep, Kurt Angle went over to SmackDown to fill that gap. And then... As a reward for digging them out of this hole, they jumped him out to HBK the next week on Raw. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> the year after that, Edge took over Mr. Kennedy's Money in the Bank opportunity, dug them out of a hole when The Undertaker was injured, became the champion, and then rewarded him for doing so by jumping him out to HBK the next week. <laughs> I'll take a pattern here. Yeah. Ah. Uh, Speaking of jobbing people out, WWE had a lot of undercard wrestlers that they really inappropriately used to get squashed, really. Every other week, I saw Evan Bourne or Kofi Kingston or somebody that would have been useful slightly higher up on the card being used to prop up people like Sheamus. And I don't... You know, there's a lot of value in doing squash matches, but you have certain people that you that are tailor made for that. Yeah, they just they they pick the wrong people for the wrong roles quite often, and they were guilty of something that they've never really gotten out of the habit of since this time. It's just a lot of stop start pushes. Like Evan Bourne and Kofi Kingston are two great names that I was going to mention when you brought this up because Kofi especially has been stop start push right up until this year when he won the belt. Evan Bourne, like a lot of people, um, had that kind of booking and never survived through to end up on top. You know, playing the long game like Kofi did. They just they would get behind you for a few weeks and then they'd use you as a tool to get somebody they like better over. And typically it's just when someone bigger comes along and, you know, it's easy to see why they never really gain any momentum and the booking doesn't keep keep eyes on the show because you can't get invested anyone in anyone when some lumbering giant comes along a month later and kills them. Yeah, exactly. Um, on the TNA side of things, uh, it's like irritating bad habits that they had. Um, I was so sick of authority figure feuds. I was so sick of authority figures complaining about having to do their jobs. I was so sick of all of this talk about, oh, we've got to turn things around, brother. Yeah, it's um, it's not the best, is it? When you're basically saying, um, this show sucks, but we're gonna, we're, it's a work in progress. So hang around and watch. Yeah, 
Um, I forget what initial rating they did for January 4th. I think it was something in the twos. Um, but yeah, like, you've... Sure, you've doubled your audience at that point, but half of your audience is still the initial fan base that's there, and if you're telling them that you think that the thing that they were invested in before Hulk came along to save professional wrestling is shit, then you're going to offend people. Exactly. I mean, it's such a weird thing, isn't it? Like, company gets big enough to be able to attract someone like Hulk. Hulk comes in and changes everything about the company that got them to that point. Yeah, there's... There's a way of keeping this hybrid of it, really, and... um, I think too much mm, too much was done to think about the principles that would appeal to the new creative people rather than building from the ground up as like okay we we have all of these sectors that we appeal to already how can we balance things out and uh, yeah I don't think they got that balance quite right um, oh, and get some medical staff that can actually do their jobs, for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard when you're not allowed to go to a hospital. You have to keep searching for the closest medical facility. <laughs> oh, boy. I, just find somebody that can dress a cut or something, please. <laughs> I'm so sick of seeing Ric Flair's head ripped open. I was about to say, and then have... Not being fixed. And then have them room with Ric Flair because it's a 24-7 job. (laughs) (laughs) Ric Flair has got a forehead like fucking onion skin at this point. Jesus. Um, Yeah, and so overall, the the big picture for me was WWE... They're kind of like mirror opposites of each other here. WWE had the better pay-per-views overall, I felt, but excuse me, their television was rather lazy and uninspired for the most part. Whereas TNA, you could feel some of the changes coming in from Hogan's take most effect on the pay-per-view, which is traditionally when they'd come out and shine in ring and stuff. But their television was mostly pretty captivating. They had a lot of interesting failures. There was some duds as far as shows go, but again, I was always interested to see what would come out of that, and you'd occasionally get a little gem in the ring. Yeah, I think TNA had two things going for it. It let a lot of its performers go, so it didn't have to build to this big crescendo like a lot of WWE shows go, where you could essentially, on a lot of WWE pay-per-views, you could skip the first hour and a half and not really miss anything, to be honest. Um TNA would let their undercard guys go a bit more, which meant you could have your entertainment, entertaining segments anywhere in the show. And then it also had the, I guess, it's not necessarily positive, but it depends how you want to look at it. WWE would bore you to death, whereas TNA would have car crashes that you couldn't turn away from at times. It was definitely hard to turn away. Yeah. Um Like I said, it's more of a sort of peaks and valleys situation with TNA. WWE was just kind of flat. They were doing things that were safe, but it was just like very sort of mechanical, like trying things that worked before, but with talent that wasn't necessarily ready to make those things 
work to the same level that had been achieved in the past. Definitely. Okay, so we're going to move on to some more specific awards, if you will. Dum, da, da, dum, we're going to kick dum. things off <laughs> with what I've coined as the Marish Crane Award for the most influential off-screen contribution. So these are the people that have had the most impact outside of what was going on directly on our TV screens. So i got two from each company here. Um, these are other things that we missed on television during our timeline because uh, they weren't direct head-to-head with each other yet. Or these were just things that happened outside of wrestling, outside of television altogether. So we've got Awesome Kong for kicking the ever-loving shit out of Bubba the Love Sponge and thus consigning the Knockouts tag team titles to the beautiful people on all of these constant every single title is on the line matches that we got. We've got John Cena's mate from Hollywood that helped us get to see Bret Hart on screen for a fair few weeks talking about his broken leg. (laughs) We've got Lloyds of London for paying Brett a shit ton of money for not being able to get hit in the head and making his physical contributions to our timeline pretty awful. And there are the ninjas who kidnapped Samoa Joe and caused him to just suddenly come back in a sudden reset and just beat people up for some lively parts of the latter part of our timeline. I personally think uh, Lloyds of London have the most to answer for here. <laughs> I've found so many of the physical segments involving Bret Hart really, really embarrassing because it just seems so counterintuitive. Like, you'd normally whack someone right in the face, but oh no, because it's Bret, you have to really softly kick them in the gut. Otherwise, Lloyds are going to be pissed. It's a good choice. That actually... Um... I wonder if Lloyds of London have secretly paid every wrestler in WWE to not take a chair shot these days because that's exactly what happens now. <laughs> oh, I just wish they'd stop bringing chairs in. Um, <laughs> I actually um, went for Awesome Kong. Um, first of all, fuck Bubba the Love Sponge. He is an absolute piece of yes! shit. <laughs> but secondly, like I, you know, when, when you brought up this idea to do this show and think about everything that's happened on our timeline and I'm going, oh, my memory's not very good. I can't remember everything. I'm never going to forget the bullshit with the lockbox and all the knockout stuff and how poorly booked it was. And if Awesome Kong um, twatting Bubba the Love Sponge was a catalyst for this, then it's definitely had the most impact, no pun intended, on me personally. (laughs) There was slightly a, a greater level of dignity for the knockouts tag division before Kong got let go. Her and Hamada were the champions. I thought they had a pretty decent match to win the titles on January 4th. Um, You know, they were like a workhorse tag team. Them uh, having to lose their titles or being stripped of the titles because Kong went absolutely messed up their plans with Hamada. We only really saw her in that stupid lockbox match. Um, and then, yeah, drove things towards the beautiful people who were more sort of story-based characters. Um, and, yeah, we never really got the standard of wrestling 
in TNA as far as their women's division goes that one might have expected going off the legacy of the stuff they had at the back end of 2007 and all during 2008. Indeed. Now, let's turn things around to go slightly positive again here. Favourite storyline moments or angles? So, uh, for me, we've got Matt Morgan and Hernandez. Their overall story was just superb. He had the super team, two singles guys coming together and got to try and dominate the tag division. Then uh, they got put into the Against All Odds tournament together and that brewed some tension there and you got the slow build of Matt Morgan turning heel. Then that excellent angle where he kicked Hernandez into the ring post and he did the whole injury angle. And then uh, everything that came after that with him, with Morgan using the Royal Wii and having both tag belts and having to uh, team up with random people at TNA management's request. It was just stellar for me. Um, It played off a lot of tropes that we'd see commonly used in other wrestling companies, but it just excelled to a different level and brought out a lot of good stuff from different people. Um, I guess that's kind of spoiled my <laughs> my answer for this, but um, a few other ones that I thought would be good to mention, the slow turn of Randy Orton to being a babyface, you know, starting off wrestling another heel at the Royal Rumble, then wrestling in his hometown at Elimination Chamber, and... Getting people really anticipating wanting to cheer for him. I thought that was good overall. You had Shawn Michaels' pursuit of The Undertaker, his desperation to get a rematch because he's determined that he can beat The Undertaker. And he goes ballistic at losing the Royal Rumble. He sneaks into the Elimination Chamber to screw The Undertaker. Lots of good moments there. And then another big moment for me was Kurt Angle and all of the troops absolutely bodying Mr. <laughs> Anderson that time. Mwah, 10 on 10 moment for me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Morgan and Hernandez gets the Duke for me here. What about you, Lee? I feel like I would agree with you on that had our timeline also had the return of Hernandez and the, and the payout for that. Um, and having not had that in our timeline is the only thing that stopped that from being the winner for me. Um, the other storylines were, were okay, but the one that really stood out for me was Taker and Shawn Michaels. Uh, so the um, the Royal Rumble, the Elimination Chamber, all really good stuff. Um, the final agreement from Undertaker. The match itself was of the highest quality, which also helps a good storyline. And then you got the emotional, um, you know, sort of sentimental goodbye afterwards. So it was sort of a beautiful really sort of beginning, middle and end to a storyline that we saw all the way through our timeline. So that, that gets my pick. Um, as I said, the, the Morgan Hernandez one definitely was up there, but just not having that payoff is the only thing that stopped it for me. Yeah. I guess for me, I expected to enjoy Shawn Michaels harrying The Undertaker for a rematch, and I, I knew a lot about that storyline already. I couldn't remember... Morgan and Hernandez's storyline being this well executed from when I watched back then. So that was more of a pleasant surprise to me. Um, Like you say, it's a bit of a shame that we haven't had a chance to see the blow-off. I guess we don't really know how well that got executed, but 
Yeah, they were, Matt Morgan was a, a really pretty big highlight as far as TNA television goes. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess Sean and the Undertaker stuff. A lot of it happened on pay per view as opposed to on the television. But we'll get more onto their classic match later on. On the other side of the coin, worst storylines and angles. So. <laughs> we we had, like I said, lots of interesting failures during this time. We had Abyss being donated Hulk Hogan's Hall of Fame ring, and it gave him magical powers, but not really. No, oh no, we're not saying he, he's got super strength because of this. No, that's stupid. No, <laughs> we never implied that. No. The absolutely useless debut of Rob Van Dam as a surprise opponent for Sting, beating Sting in 30 seconds, getting absolutely jobbed out by Sting after the match with the baseball bat attack and then giving all his heat to Hulk Hogan the next week made them both look like mugs we've got Dudley Do-Right babyface John Cena duct taping Batista's legs together to win his last man standing match what a fantastic role model that is there and then we also have McGruber accidentally blowing up our truth who was somehow able to wrestle at Extreme Rules the next week. Oh, what a list. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real killer's role here. I mean, I think for me, considering where he ended up eventually, the debut of Rob Van Dam was just a real kick in the groin. Like, what a way to hamstring yourself there if... You know, you're going to push him that high up the card, you know? Yeah, I guess I, the, the thing with Sting was quite stupid and it was um, typical of a lot of the stuff going on at the time is it had to just revolve around Hulk. And I got used to that and didn't hate it as much because I kind of, like, at least Hulk wasn't getting in and winning the belt. So that, I, I guess, was enough for me to survive. The one that got me, and I know I ranted about this at the time, but the Cena and Batista match, like... You cannot build up a last man standing match and then end it with that bullshit. It was just awful, like utter crap. It took the credibility of the match, the title, and the wrestlers away from for me. I hated it. Yeah, terrible, terrible stuff. Um, back to the Sting and Hogan thing. Like like you, I got very used to this storyline. Like there was a couple of points where. Oh, Hulk Hogan and Sting, they're going to have this big summit, they're going to have this big verbal confrontation, and then absolutely nothing came of it. It just went nowhere. Yeah. Uh, um, And you, you say, oh, at least Hulk didn't win the title. I think in his head he did win the title. If you think about Rob Van Dam when he won the title, all his confetti was in red and yellow. The next week, Hulk was cutting his promo as if he had won the title. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know. I think if we'd have watched until the the end of the year and had to suffer more Hulk, maybe I would have felt differently. But I think we must have got out just in time before he did my head in. And I'm not normally a big Hulk guy. So, yeah, he just survived. Okay, favourite feuds. So, people with recurring rivalries that we saw throughout the timeline. Uh, big early one was the Pope, D'Angelo De Niro versus Desmond Wolfe. 
something we saw only really on pay-per-view but had some really excellent moments overall was Rey Mysterio and CM Punk Mm. a big highlight of the latter part of our timeline was The Miz and The Hearts and Heart Dynasty and then of course we mentioned in some of our favourite storylines Matt Morgan and Hernandez I think overall even though they became the victim of the law of diminishing returns uh, Pope and Wolf was a, a big highlight for me really um, Lee I know you mentioned previously these were characters you weren't necessarily that familiar with and it really set you up on Pope yeah I, I agree with you completely on this Pope and Wolf was my pick um, Wolf I, I, I didn't think I was going to love this you know whatever the first show we watched with them on I found Wolf to be a little bit irritating and not that great in the ring I know kill me i'd never seen nigel mcginnis before he definitely got better but um i wasn't that impressed on night one to be perfectly honest but by the end of it i was actually really happy they kept coming back to the well on this one um pope came out of that feud a megastar ready for a world title match and possibly even a world title win to be honest so wolf had done his job and he kept his credibility as well and still always looked like one of those heels they could go to if they needed a main event guy and he, he wouldn't be out of place so i think the feud did them both really really well um I would like to add in an honourable mention on this one as well. I know we didn't see a lot of it, but for the entertainment value alone, Jay Lethal and Ric Flair has definitely got to be right up there for one of the best feuds we witnessed. <laughs> I'm so gutted that we just missed out on this. Yeah, for sure. Um, best use of Ric Flair during that time, that's for sure. Oh, 100%. It was great. On the other side of things, worst feud, um, I didn't put this in the standings, but an honourable mention for me would have been Abyss and Ric Flair. Fucking garbage. I've got an honourable mention for this one too, um, Sheamus and Triple H. (laughs) Yes, that was very duff in terms of execution. Um, So... uh, The four that I picked out in particular to highlight were The Band against Eric Young and Team 3D, Mr. Anderson and Kurt Angle, Legacy and Randy Orton nearly boxed Orton's face turn here, really. It was a good thing that the crowd was still on side with Orton becoming a face, especially at WrestleMania. Um, And, of course, MacGruber and Vladimir Kozlov. (laughs) Oh man, I don't think you can beat Angle and Anderson for worst feud. Two guys, I liked Ken Kennedy in WWE and I was excited to see him in TNA when we started watching this. I love Kurt Angle. He's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time uh, in terms of not just in-ring, but character and overall performance as well. And I came out of this wanting to pull my eyeballs out of my sockets. It was disgustingly bad. I'm sure some people are going to argue here because my two favourite moments from that rivalry were, one, the segment with the troops where they absolutely just beat the ever-loving piss out of Anderson. That was great, really cathartic. And two, the finish of the lockdown cage match, which I didn't particularly care for. I I know you were pleasantly surprised by it, but... <laughs> the waker angle left, spat on Mr. Anderson, trod on his dick, and then walked out like a total badass. Fantastic. 
And I'm sure there'll be people who'll be like, oh, well, the feud did its job then. It got you really, really invested in Kurt beating Anderson. I'm like, no, these were very, very cathartic, sparing, fleeting moments of joy from what was a pretty irritating rivalry for me. Um, That lockdown match, it was... The post-match stuff that came out of it was really kind of like, eh, because Kurt just walked away and went off on a break, and then Mr. Anderson would try and take credit for that, but we all know the truth as far as that goes. Um, And then, oh God, what else was there? Oh, Jesus Christ, that ladder match they had for the cage key. Which was a waste of of time. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most distressing matches I think we've had on this timeline really just the, the bumps and stuff that they took no wonder kurt went off for a break you know absolutely a complete waste of time let him have the key get in the cage kick him in the balls and take said key yeah and especially when he just wore it around his neck as well just go yank, exactly like unless he's gonna bolt to the cage get the key from around his neck turn the lock before you can walk four steps and stop him what was the purpose of the ladder match absolutely none it's like um it's like having a ladder match to decide which corner is your corner to start with (laughs) it's completely inconsequential like it makes zero difference um the same like i always liken it to like anything on a pole like let the guy climb up, and then as he's climbing back down, twat him and take the object. Like, I don't understand why <laughs> you would go through all the bumps from high places to be first to grab an object that you will both use anyway. I've just had this vision now of, like, a Texas bull rope match where <laughs> the winner, like, the, the final corner that you slap is the corner that your team is going to be in for the next match or something. <laughs> exactly, like... <laughs> something useless like that. What a waste of time. It was like... Yeah. Oh, ladder matches that aren't for titles are always the worst. There should be nothing hung above for a ladder other than a belt. Ever. I mean, it's mm. it's not quite... What was it that... um in WCW was it like their gold record or something <laughs> ladder match it was um was it three count and somebody Jesus Christ I know um <laughs> my mate Mark showed me that match years ago when he visited in Australia is yeah there was some good stuff in like WCW and I'm like what is this bollocks <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna reference uh what was it a couple of years before this it was the, the fight for your right thing where Christian and Kazarian had a, a ladder match for some contract or something, and the actual contract fell off, <laughs> got unhooked, and they had to fight over the clipboard instead. <laughs> At least it's not a match for the rights to the letter T. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the best stipulation of all time when Ahmed Johnson or Sweet T had to fight Booker T to see who could use the letter T. <laughs> Oh, God. That was one of the first rivalries I can remember from watching WCW, and I had no idea that was Ahmed Johnson. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. They were going down. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm in agreement with you here, Lee. Anderson and Kurt Angle. Basically because, one, Mr. Anderson... (sighs) 
I don't think there was anybody else where the rose fell off a bloom as quickly as it did for him. And to the fact that Kurt Angle's stuck with him right after having this pretty good rivalry with AJ and now he can't wrestle for the title, but now he's stuck with Anderson. It just is a big misuse of Kurt here for me. Okay, we're going on to some of our favourite matches now uh, in the interest of keeping things positive and also highlighting um, like some of the different expectations between pay-per-view and TV. We're going to split this off into favourite pay-per-view matches and favourite TV matches and then the, the worst match category is just going to be worst overall because, you know, bad wrestling is just bad wrestling. Indeed. Um, favourite things on pay-per-view, I had... Pretty much a match from every single pay-per-view we had uh, other than lockdown. Um, so we had AJ Styles versus Kurt Angle from Genesis. The Undertaker versus Rey Mysterio from the Royal Rumble. That was really good as far as little man, big man matches go. Then the next month, Against All Odds, had AJ Styles versus Samoa Joe. And then the Elimination Chamber had the World Heavyweight Title Elimination Chamber match. Again, really good. Into March, at Destination X, we had Generation Me against the Motor City Machine Guns in Ultimate X. Absolutely fantastic. Might be a contender for the best match on our timeline ever if it didn't take place in the same month as The Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels. Ding, ding, Korea ding. versus Streak <laughs> we- at WrestleMania. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. <laughs> Obvious winner here, yeah. Um, so yeah I just wanted to go out of my way to mention some of the other matches that we saw because yeah we did see a lot of good stuff here Um, and then from Extreme Rules I had CM Punk against Rey Mysterio as well yeah some really really good matches in there AJ and Angle and the Elimination Chamber for me stood out as really really good ones as well Um, but Undertaker and Shawn Michaels was a worldly one of the best matches of all time um I I still actually of all the 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 matches that get the praise I still probably prefer the original Hell in a Cell but these two back-to-back matches between Shawn and Undertaker were you know sort of legitimate match of the year back-to-back contenders if not winners um and definite five-star matches so yeah you can't go past that for me yeah phenomenal we're we're heading to the end of the 2010s now and i'm pretty sure you're gonna see that very close to the top of lots of people's match of the decade lists yeah as far as tv matches go we were spoiled pretty early on uh january 4th on impact we had aj styles versus kurt angle a little precursor to their genesis match uh 22nd of march the march the Raw before WrestleMania. We have The Miz versus John Morrison. I was pretty impressed by that for the time given. March 29th over on Impact, AJ Styles versus Jeff Jarrett. Best use of Jeff Jarrett on the timeline. Really big favourite of mine, April the 12th. Amazing Red and Matt Morgan versus the Motor City Machine Guns for the tag titles. Then from the WWE Draft Lottery episode... Show Miz against the Hart Dynasty for the tag titles. And finally, the final week, we saw some wrestling. May the 3rd, Batista against Daniel Bryan in the Beat the Clock. 
Yeah, some really good standout matches there. Unfortunately, I guess, and this comes with the territory of being TV matches, a lot of them had sort of little asterisks next to them for me. For example, um, the amazing red Matt Morgan um, tag team title defense was obviously just a a backdrop for the Matt Morgan continuing storyline, which, while great, sort of stopped it being that really, really good match. Um, Batista and Daniel Bryan awesome but such a short period of time um even for you know to a lesser extent the miz um being in with the heart dynasty that was a um more precursor to the breaking up of show miz but the one that really got me for just being an out and out good match was aj and kurt angle i thought that was phenomenal um they were given enough time to have a really good match and i really enjoyed it so um yeah a lot of good matches there but that was my pick Mm, yeah, I'm torn between AJ and Jeff Jarrett and the amazing Red Matt Morgan and Machine Guns match. Um, I know you said that the Machine Guns match was really more of a backdrop to Matt Morgan's story, but I, I thought it interweaved things pretty well here, especially with his choice of partner. It meant that we got a lot of the action that was more trademark of... TNA earlier on in that decade um, and Matt Morgan being involved meant we saw a lot of great character work all rolled into one there so that was what made that particularly enjoyable as a whole package for me um, AJ Styles versus Jeff Jarrett yeah I, I didn't expect Jarrett to have that much gas in the tank left really um, and it was nice it, it furthered a, a whole bunch of stuff as far as moving the Team Hogan-Team Flair rivalry going forward. Um, Yeah, so those two are neck and neck for me. I have to say it was a lot harder to pick out matches from Raw than it was picking out matches for Impact. I bet. (laughs) (laughs) So we go to the other side of the coin here with worst matches of the timeline. January 4th Impact, we had the ridiculous Steel Asylum, a.k.a. Postbox in a Cell match. Ridiculous. Something WWE haven't learnt from, considering all this red lighting and the red Hell in a Cell that they like. Yeah, um, they do try and bring this out every sort of five or so years, don't they? I mean, they tried it with Kane for a while. It never works. Just leave the bloody lights on and let people see. Exactly. At WrestleMania 26, we had Mr. McMahon versus Bret Hart, no holds barred. And 12th of April, Impact, in a leather and lace match that actually turned into an I Quit match. This was Velvet Sky's whatever match she wanted match after winning her lockbox. It was Velvet Sky against Angelina Love. Uh... Absolute stinker of a show for me was the April 26th Impact that had the Jeff Hardy and Jeff Jarrett against Sting and AJ Styles no DQ, false count anywhere tag match where they pick and chose whether they were actually tagging in or not and whether it mattered who was legal and it's just bollocks. On that same show, there was Ric Flair versus Abyss, Ring versus Ring, fuck off. It's like every late 2000s Ric Flair match ever. And from WWE Draft, there was Dolph Ziggler versus Hornswoggle. What a list. <laughs> what a, <laughs> what list. a list indeed. Oh, man. I um, 
for me, I went with Vincent Brett because, as I said earlier, it did real damage for me. Like, it was the, the reason why I checked back in and the reason why so many checked out when they realized they couldn't book Brett to beat up Vince in an entertaining fashion. That's how far away they are. The, the thing that people have wanted for a decade Brett to come back and avenge his screw job and just beat the ever loving piss out of Vince and they had to overcomplicate it and make it wordy and make it nonsensical. Just get beat up and take one for the team for the love of God. Um very close second for me was anything to do with the lockbox because fuck that storyline and their treatment of the girls. I'm in pretty much the same position as you here, Lee, for it's prominence and its spot in a pretty significant show Mr McMahon versus Bret Hart took the Duke for me, it was hateful it was cynical, it actively detracted from Bret Hart's legacy um, but I would also like to highlight further the leather and lace match because we'll get more into the lockbox challenge itself specifically but this leather and lace match, so it was supposedly Velvet Sky's choice of match after getting that contract the previous week. But then it couldn't be for Angelina Love's knockouts title because she had to defend it the next week at lockdown. Uh, Sky then decides against it being a leather and lace match because nobody deserves to see her body, which means she expected to lose because the stipulation was you get stripped down and you lose. She then makes it an I quit match the handcuffed love, and then the match just ends after a run-in. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it was really worth going to the trouble of winning that lockbox, wasn't it? Oh, oh my God, yeah. What? It's the whole risk and reward that I think you've talked about a few occasions on this podcast, Lee. It's just not worth it. Yeah, I did probably just got counted out and not bothered with any of this bollocks, except for the fact that the title might have been in one of the boxes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> on to characters now we'll start with some of our favourites uh, a big name that you've been hearing all throughout this episode so far in our timeline Pope D'Angelo De Niro really assured promo work really nice character touches he looked like a star The Miz especially in the later part pairing off with Brett and the Hart Dynasty Again, really, really good promo work. It's really moving up the card here. Batista and his post-MTV VMAs Kanye West character. Really, really good stuff. I just wish we saw a little bit more out of it. Matt Morgan, Morgan, after his heel turn on Hernandez, using the royal we, being forced into using all of his partners. And... As both Black Machismo and the Nature Boy, Jay Lethal. Jay Lethal. <laughs> a nice, constant moment of brevity on impact. Yeah, I am um, Jay Lethal for me all the way. Um, get Coco Beware! <laughs> uh, Brutus Beefcake versus Hillbilly Jim. <laughs> just amazing. He was just so fucking entertaining. He was great. And the stuff he did with Ric Flair was amazing. It just 
the best. Um, everyone you named then like was a serious contender for me because I think this is part of the reason why I enjoyed it so much because a lot of guys, even when the booking wasn't great and we were in a downturn and, and whatnot, there's a lot of guys having sort of career-making runs with their character. Uh, Batista got better as he went along, I felt, as a character. He was someone that just got got the business more and more every year he was in it. And even though his booking wasn't consistent, he got better and better. Pope was a very close call for me because I loved everything Pope did during this timeline. Some really, really good stuff. Um, but yeah, Jay Lethal takes a duke for me just for being the most entertaining man in wrestling at this point. Mm. Uh, I went with Pope here. Miz narrowly uh, missed out on this like you could see the assurance in his character now he started to really feel like he was heading towards feeling and behaving like more of a top line guy um he had some great zingers but pulp overall had just more value for money in terms of entertainment factor onto the worst characters now and there's only four here it's a bit of a TNA bias here, but fuck it. Bubba the Love Sponge, fuck right off. <laughs> Being the special interviewer for the band, and even beforehand, just as a regular backstage interviewer, you know, calling Mick Foley kid after he lost a retirement match. Calling JB a milk toast vanilla asshole, as if Bubba the Love Sponge is this big, interesting character. Fuck right off. Uh, from WWE side of things, there was Hornswoggle. Always brought up some irritating moments. Back to TNA, we had Mr. Anderson. Dire, dire promo work all throughout this timeline. And then Eric Bischoff. Flip-flop from heel and face and heel and face. And one, I didn't care. And two, it's just like, ugh, no. I Okay, so Bischoff was not well booked and not likable in the slightest, but he was more dull than outrageously offensive to me. Hornswoggle's just mm. bullshit comedy that I don't enjoy, but, you know, I, I guess it has its place on the show, so it's not for me. But the, the ones that, I guess, really went out of their way to offend me, and I couldn't split, so I've got a tie, is Ken Anderson for not only pissing all over his legacy from WWE when I enjoyed him and becoming everything I hate about a wrestler, but also for damn near dragging Kurt Angle down into the pit with him. And Bubba the Love Sponge for being a complete and utter fuckwit. Like, he just... he Every time he spoke, I wanted to punch him in the face. And he was flippant about the wrestlers, about the show. He was arrogant, but not in a heel way. He used inside terminology when he had no right to. He was just a... Like, he offered nothing to the show other than to be a complete ball bag. Bubba the ball bag. <laughs> I think he takes the biscuit for me here because at least with Anderson, you got some moments of catharsis where the baby face would get the upper hand on him. Bubba, you couldn't do jack shit with. Like I think there was the one time Mick Foley put a mandible claw on him. That was the one time he got his comeuppance. Other than that, it's just he he typified the Hulk's friends coming in and taking up vital TV time for me. And he blatantly didn't want to be there, and he said quotes that hinted that, I could just quit. Fucking quit, then! Yes, please. Ugh. 
Anyway, <laughs> trying to turn things <laughs> back around to being a little more positive here. Most pleasant surprise thing that took you by surprise in terms of enjoyment factor for me, or that um, I don't know, challenged your preconceptions over this time period the most. So, a big one for me was the Genesis pay-per-view. I remember all of the furore around that at the time. I thought it was going to be terrible. There was some really entertaining in-ring stuff there for me. AJ Styles, despite having the Nature Boy Ric Flair gimmick, he was far less hamstrung with his in-ring work than I anticipated. He was a constant highlight in the ring during this timeline. Over on WWE side, we got the big show against John Cena during WrestleMania Rewind week. Really, really nice, breezy match. Probably the best match they ever had together. And they got put in some really much more prominent spots than that. And what we mentioned previously, the Miz's promo work alongside Bret Hart. Bret isn't really, other than when he's giving out about America and family values and stuff, isn't really your top kind of promo guy. But this pairing with Miz really, really worked well and helped establish Miz as someone who could be taken seriously in terms of getting his points across. Yeah, I actually um, went with the Miz because... I was. I've never been a, a Miz fan. I don't mind him now, and I think he's got his place. And if he got another main event run, I wouldn't begrudge him that because I think he's earned it through longevity and hard work. But you know, longevity and hard work implies that he's been there for a while, and now he's just getting good. But this stuff here, like his mic work, was really, really good. He kind of cut Brett down. He built up the Hart Dynasty whilst attacking them as a heel. He kept Big Show relevant. He made Big Show look like a million bucks when the break came. Like, everything about Miz's character work during our timeline was solid. So, yeah, that was a pleasant surprise for me, and I honestly didn't see it coming. Yeah, very good. And just for context, we're recording this the day before TLC 2009, and we're seeing The Miz currently paired off with Bray Wyatt's Fiend, and... I've been watching a lot of that stuff in terms of the storyline and he's really treating that theme gimmick with a much higher level of dignity than perhaps some other people would be able to bring out of it. Like we're still seeing it today, like how good Miz is on the mic and with stories. Absolutely. Um, For me, it's... AJ Styles in ring work still coming out and shining. Uh, it was a big part of what I was dreading about this time for me. AJ not being allowed to be AJ Styles. And really all that happened was, yeah, he did some promo work where he kind of sounded like Ric Flair and took on some of his cadence and stuff. But in ring, he was still allowed to be AJ Styles and... Yeah, he was able to carry on TNA's trademark action in-ring much more than I anticipated. So, yeah, because he he was a constant in-ring highlight of this timeline. So that was a big reason why I chose him. Fair enough. Biggest disappointment. Uh, we brought this up briefly when we were talking about guys getting squashed, but... 
the absolute nosedive of Kofi Kingston. Before we started our timeline, he was on this really hot street feuding with Orton. And we only just missed the stupid, stupid, stupid incident. And then from that point, he was just a footnote. He only barely got on the WrestleMania card of the 11th hour. Ridiculous. Edge's return after the Royal Rumble is kind of fizzling out and then pushing the panic button and turning him heel. Another big disappointment. And his rivalry with Jericho in general. Um, and then from TNA side of things, we have them missing out on establishing two of their newer stars. So Pope losing momentum after winning the Against Our Lords tournament. And then Generation Me having this star-making Destination X performance. And then the only other time we'll see them is in a gauntlet against Doug Williams putting him over. Yeah, I am. Um, I agree with most of that. I think for me the biggest disappointment was Pope losing momentum just because I got invested in the character and you know it's it's hard it sounds crazy but when you go back and you watch wrestling from 10 years ago and all of a sudden you have a new favorite character and then you watch it fizzle out and it's yeah for for me that was a big disappointment it shouldn't be because obviously you you know spoilers you can read spoilers and you know exactly what happens but it was disappointing to see someone that I got invested in because I the whole premise since I started this show was to go back and watch the two shows and rate them based on their merits not to read you know what Meltzer or someone said about them and and go in with bias only bias I've got is I was a WWF kid and wasn't a WCW fan but this the whole purpose that is going back and objectively reviewing them so I don't read any more than what I need to know about the two events I'm watching at the time but yeah getting invested in Pope and then having I guess being let down was a, a big disappointment for me I'm in agreement with you here Lee yeah um Pope he was kind of becoming prominent before Hogan arrived, but when once Hogan arrived, it really looked like he was about to take off, and then things just kind of faltered, and they had these missteps with him. Um, it robbed us of this really good character, and you know, it was something that perhaps we could have seen more of out of TNA, where great character workers got the prominence, as well as these great in-ring workers that they had before. You know, like Joe and AJ and Daniels and stuff. Um, so, yeah, they really missed out on something there. For sure. On to the award for most awkward moment. So it's either cringe-worthy or going against your expectations. So we had Jericho being banished from Raw on the January 4th show, only to just casually turn up again on WrestleMania Rewind Week just because... The fan reaction to the Genesis pay-per-view after Hogan's no more stinking playpin rings, brother, promo. <laughs> and all the sit-down Brooke chants and them turning their backs on Sean Morley beating Daniels. Your favourite, Lee, has got to be your front-runner, Matt Stryker's commentary. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally we had Rob Van Dam and Jeff Hardy going over highlights of their own match backstage and being really awkward and having nothing much of interest to say about it. 
I can safely say my pick and Michael Cole's pick is Matt Stryker's commentary. Um, Michael Cole said it best way back when on one of the episodes where he just blatantly said to Matt Stryker, you're weird. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just wrote down here as well as, as it being my pick, two of my favourite lines that best um, show why I hated Matt Stryker's commentary. Smack Dizown, bro. <laughs> and... Um, and of course, the um, infamous, I'm marking out, bro. Like, fuck off. You are such a bad commentator. I hate you. The, the big one I remember is during the Elimination Chamber. It's like, what will happen to these virgins of the steel? Yes. Whatever it was, just. I went with the fan reaction to TNA Genesis. That was the first big moment of an audience openly rebelling against a show like that that I can recall. Um, you'd only really see that in like the more niche ECW shows sometimes and over specific incidents. The fans at Genesis consistently were turning against things that were happening on that show. Um, and another thing that typified it for me was Mr. Anderson debuting and they were like oh holy shit it's Mr. Anderson and then he wrestled and they were chanting overrated <laughs> I know that was great that was some amazing karma <laughs> okay something else that came up during us covering this timeline uh, was a little uh complimentary uh, rating scale. So, Lee, you came up with the Hammerlock scale for shit matches. <laughs> I came up with the Kevin Nash scale for bullshit promos. And we're <laughs> going to discuss which promos during this time were the most bullshit. So, on January 4th, we had Kevin Nash's promo bragging about Hogan coming to TNA and all the money that he's going to make working for TNA now a.k.a. the promo that kicked off this scale. We had Triple H from the March 8th Raw trying to hype up Sheamus' debut year and saying that the people that Triple H had beaten at WrestleMania became mere footnotes in wrestling history. Kurt Angle on March 29th Impact claiming that Mr. Anderson is just as good as him and they've been 50-50 in their feud despite absolutely making him look like a clown at Destination X the previous week. And then finally, appropriately enough, Kevin Nash on April the 5th justifying his heel turn after lockdown and having the most laziest, unpassionate, cadence and verbiage I've ever heard in a promo well I actually um, for this one here I went with Triple H um, thank god I've got you on here and not Kyle so I don't have to argue this too, too vehemently but um, the mere footnotes line I remember we talked about this on the show and it's like man the guys you fought at Wrestlemania you have taken on Owen Hart, the ultimate warrior, the undertaker, um, the rock, like you have been up there with the best of the best of the best. They are not mere footnotes. They are much, much bigger stars than you. Like, don't be a dickhead. 
Right, yeah, it took one of his opponents being a homicidal maniac to get written out of history. Triple H has never had an insignificant match at WrestleMania. Yeah, uh, just really, really bad stuff, that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Kevin Nash's second promo, for me, took the biscuit. He was just so unmotivated. He totally didn't believe what he was saying at all. I'd never heard anything like it. (laughs) He was like, I'm going to say some stuff now. Oh, yeah, I got this point to add. Just, oh, my God. Yeah, that I think I feel like that's Kevin Nash in general, so it didn't surprise me as much. But yeah, some of the others, um, you're like you're shaking your head in disbelief. Hey, boy. On to favorite hidden highlights, little moments that perhaps gone missing in history that you wanted to bring up. So early on, we had the Great Carly in the Royal Rumble. During the Tumblr section beforehand, where the numbers were drawn, he was willing to trade his number for a kiss from Tiffany, and then later on in the night, he got eliminated by being kissed. Kofi Kingston looking over his shoulder before entering the Elimination Chamber match, because last year he got attacked before he could enter the match. Eric Bischoff trying to put his freshly shaved hair back on his head after Mick Foley humiliated him. Absolute gold. Ric Flair coming out of the Orlando Striporama Motability Bus after being put in a wheelchair by Abyss. Mwah. Then you have the fan at WrestleMania yelling out all of Triple H's spots ahead of time. <laughs> and finally, Lacey Von Eric having a nightstick like the big boss man that was called the Ugly Stick. I think that took the cake for me here. These were all these were all good, but um, I actually this is it sounds ridiculous, I know, but I liked Lacey Von Eric and her character, and I felt like had the women being had they been booked strongly, her being the ditzy throwback diva could have really worked at the time. But the fact that they were trying to present all the other women as serious, you know, wrestlers whilst giving them one minute matches and ruining that image, she didn't have the effect that her character could have done. Like, if you put Lacey Von Erich into today's WWE and she was in there with, like, Sasha and Becky and Charlotte, I actually feel like that could be really entertaining. Like, I'm the the ditzy throwback diva. What, we don't do this anymore? I don't get it. (laughs) She she was, like, harmless as a character, really. She was terrible in the ring, (laughs) but (laughs) she would have been a nice... um, you know, light-hearted part of the division if she wasn't put quite so much on equal footing with everyone else. Indeed. Um, Ric Flair and the Orlando Striporama bus. I marked so hard when I spotted that. It was pretty funny. <laughs> oh, <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other one to mention was uh, that time Hulk Hogan's team for a lethal lockdown drove to the arena and abyss drove him there wearing his mask <laughs> i love wrestling masks in public i i do have a soft spot for that <laughs> <laughs> speaking of stuff we had soft spots for stuff that was really really terrible but we really really enjoyed anyway all of which comes from tna i've turned this award the most entertaining bollocks <laughs> 
So we had two uh, foreign object incidents at Destination X. There was the one where a fan refused to give their chair to Mr. Anderson when he asked for it, and he just had to kind of awkwardly look elsewhere. <laughs> then we had Six Pack spending absolutely forever looking for weapons under the ring <laughs> in, in his tag match. Like, what the fuck is it? Why you gotta go and fucking hide it? But the absolute top moment for me, as far as bollocks goes, the reason I wanted to do this timeline, and my favourite thing that I think we've ever done together, the Nasty Boys Wrestling Team 3D against all odds. Oh my god. (laughs) I guess... um... The, the Nasty Boys wrestling at that point was going to be bad, but yeah, against Team 3D. I, I liked that. I actually didn't mind the, the ranting and raving backstage in their little feud. But for me, I, you know, I guess I like my bollocks and my, my laughably bad stuff to be short. So Six looking for the weapons was probably my favorite of the bunch there um, because it was just one of them proper blooper reel moments that we don't see very often in an overproduced, overscripted wrestling landscape today. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, you know, you mentioned that Nasty Boys backstage skits were all right. I love taking apart that promo that they did before their match. <laughs> Just some of the lines they came out with it was like, "What are you chatting about?" Yeah, nonsensical but fun. <laughs> Another TNA specific award: Worst Titantron. <laughs> this was a running theme. <laughs> <laughs> Their production levels were uh, not really on the level here. I'd like to. I'd, so I'd, we had I'd, before you before you read out the categories. This is one that I'd love to dub the uh, Big Boss Man Return Award um, because ah! <laughs> when the Boss Man made his return, um, when he'd been away, um, I can't even remember when it was. It might have it might have even been like two thousand and two or something. It was one of his WWE returns. But his Titan Tron was effectively just his name flashing up and the guy he hit with his nightstick on his debut on the show before. It was just literally two things <laughs> interchanging. It was so bad. Oh my god. So we we got the same lack of variety in some of these guys' trons here. So we got Bobby Lashley with just the shitty CGI engine, just for some reason. Pope with the constants flitting between a random piece of cleavage and graffiti of a drug needle for some reason. Your feature presentation, Sean Morley, for having actual tortoise sex in his video. <laughs> and then finally, Angelina Love for still having silhouettes of the beautiful people in her tron despite being kicked out of the group months ago. I went with Lashley for the basic reason I just gave you about the boss man's. It was just, if you're going to make something up, make it entertaining, like go all out. But yeah, this was just lame and repetitive. So yeah, Lashley took the cake on this one for me. Taught a sex all the way. <laughs> I knew you were going to go it. <laughs> oh, what the fuck is that even doing there? It's no blooming flower followed by hot dogs being put into buns, is it? I know. It's just like euphemism, euphemism, euphemism. Ah, fuck it. Here's some sex. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Our final award before we move on to our normal ending five categories. 
uh, is the dick move of the timeline. Now, if you've been listening to some of our other negative awards and wondering why we've overlooked some of these other moments, it's because we've been saving them for this. So, we had the infamous Piggy James storyline at the Royal Rumble. Terrible. We had Eric Bischoff moving Kazarian's X Division title shot forward and then making it a freeway during TNA's Monday Night debut. We had the Hot Tub Time Machine stars doing their Hot Tub Endurance Contest for a Divas title match that never came about. We had the Lockbox Challenge. A fucking ridiculous game of chance, basically. TNA stripped Doug Williams of the X Division title because that Icelandic volcano went off. It was blatantly Doug Williams' fault for that, of course, you know. Well, we got to the bottom of it, didn't we? We determined it was John Tenter's fault. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely. If John Tenter was working for TNA and he had a title, they might be in their right mind to strip him of it. But Doug Williams is kind of innocent in this, I think. Yeah, he's certainly, he's certainly no natural disaster, that is for sure. <laughs> and then, finally, Triple H and Michael Cole making horse jokes about Lillian Garcina. Uh, about Lillian Garcia after she returned to do the ring announcing as a favour during that same Icelandic volcano. Uh, Lee, I think there's a clear and obvious winner here, even though there's some terrible things amongst these categories. Um, I hope you're going to be in agreement with me because for me this was the easiest one to pick and it was the lockbox. It was absolute bullshit and it imagine i mean there were some bad ones in there but imagine you're the champion you do everything you can do in a match you go out and you win the fall the first fall the first pin you've defended your title and then now as a reward for going out and beating your opposition and getting the pin you now have a 33 percent chance of keeping your belt right 100 <laughs> percent. the most ridiculous stipulation i think i've ever seen in wrestling you you can lose your title by a game of chance and then, not just that, but the the, uh, the strippergram thing was one of the other things that you could quote unquote win. Yeah. Why would you try and win the match? It's, oh my god, Tina, you're very good at that bollocks. It's the whole Jim Connor. If it comes out of a box, it's over principle. But yeah, this was like a really, really significant chunk of TV time on that show, and it was what they deemed to be an appropriate big-time showcase for the women wrestlers. And it was just dire, it was misogynistic, and just utterly, utterly terrible. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen in wrestling. For me, a a strong runner-up, though, was uh, Triple H and Michael Cole making fun of Lillian Garcia on Raw. That was just, like, there was no purpose behind that just being a dickhead like at least you know somebody when they wrote this lockbox bullshit thought they were writing entertaining television they were deluded and they were wrong but there was good intentions behind it i would assume triple h making fun of a ring announcer who will never get to say anything back to him is just bullshit and the way they 
treat unprofessional behavior in WWE has always bothered me. Because if Lillian Garcia on the next ring announcement went, oh, by the way, Triple H is a complete dickhead, she'd be fired on the spot. But he can come out and go, mm-hmm. hey, you look like a horse. <laughs> Seeing as how Kyle's not here, I can continue the Triple H slander here. So, <laughs> please do. <laughs> that was that was one of the things that I'd heard backstage as far as behaviors go. Um, there was a big article about all of the slights that Jim Ross had to put up with behind the scenes in Power Slam years ago, and one of the things that featured prominently was someone would make a joke at JR's expense and then they'd pass over to Triple H and Triple H would be expected to like stamp it out or whatever but he'd actually pile on because he wants to be the cool guy like I think Rob Van Dam mentioned that he was always trying to crack jokes that came off as well to try and be cool um so yeah he'd like always pile on on JR and stuff and it's kind of sad seeing JR always addressed those rumours and he'd be like, uh, well, Triple H has been nothing but professional working with me. I-, I can guarantee you that. Which is blatantly like, you know, like you're saying about, oh, if Lillian just came out and said, what a dick, she'd get fired. It's, you know, Jim Ross towing the company line, trying to save his job for the fifth time or whatever. So... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not fun. <laughs> nope. So now we're getting to the real brass tacks of things. Our traditional five categories that we judge our shows against, we're going to try and judge the whole timeline over. So, first off, we're kicking off with production values. Lee, who had the best production? throughout the time we've been watching these two companies i mean it has to be wwe doesn't it um tna did some good stuff and some innovative stuff and then they made some stumbles and some mistakes um you know just stuff that didn't quite come off the way they hoped it would i praised them a few times for trying to innovate but then other times it fell flat um perfect example of something they tried that just came off bad and should have been edited out was the um jeff hardy and rvd reviewing their match and you know, had that been done and looked at properly, they would have realized, oh, this doesn't really work. Let's nix that. Um, but yeah, they tried, but they didn't have their game down pat the way the WWE did. Agreed. WWE uh, had been coping with live television and live events for far, far longer than TNA even existed, and it showed um, loads of little flubs that came from. TNA, cameras cutting to the wrong things, audio doing the wrong things, um, and like you say, they tried some innovations but we didn't really get the chance to see their ma- the most major innovations. Like It wouldn't be until about a year later where they changed completely how backstage segments worked and it was all shot way differently as compared to other wrestling promotions and it really helped them stand out but yeah here they're still finding their feet trying to cope with live television as opposed to live pay-per-views and yeah it didn't come off of them quite as well crowd heat now we've often said that oh 20,000 people should beat 2,000 but I think we found during the course of this time frame that it's 
not always quite as clear cut as that. So I'd be interested to see who you favour here in this category, Lee. I went with, I guess, like the ECW arena effect. That um, impact zone made the shows better from considering we're not there live and we're not in the spectacle and, you know, everything like that. Those couple of thousand people in the impact zone made the show more enjoyable um, for the most part. I mean, 10% of the time they were dickheads, but 90% of the time they actually (laughs) enhanced the product and made it seem like a big deal. So I went with TNA. I just enjoyed what their crowd did more than WWE sitting on their hands and being quiet. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, um, listening back to our shows, it's funny hearing back. It's like, oh yeah, WWE obviously we've got the win here. They've got a great big crowd and they reacted nicely. But then TNA, the little engine that could, just gradually undid what we thought would be a cakewalk. You know, their passion really won me over, and especially when it came to the TV shows, their fans were constantly excited. And like you say, WWE's audience could be pretty flat at times. Um, I'm thinking London golf clapping Bret Hart in particular. I'm still pissed at that. (laughs) I can tell. On to storylines. Who do you think had the most compelling or interesting storylines over our time? I went back and forth, back and forth on this, and I just couldn't pick it. Um... I felt like I wanted to lean towards TNA and then I thought about things like Anderson and Angle and the band and Eric Young and the Nasty Boys coming in and I just thought, like, I I can't go that way. But at the same time, I can't swing it all the way the other way and go WWE because they wasted Edge and Jericho, two top-tier performers. Um, They wasted the women, as did TNA too, I suppose, but they just... They each blew plenty of storylines and then had a few good ones that sort of hooked you in. Um, Show Miz and the Heart Dynasty, for example. Um, on the other side, Pope and Wolf. And there, there was good stuff on both and some bollocks on both, and I couldn't split them, so I went with a tie. I also went with a tie because I found it much harder. I, I found it really, really hard to split them up here. WWE, for me, they played it safe and were the slightly more consistent show, but for the most part, especially on television, they were pretty unremarkable. Um, It just led to some pretty decent pay-per-view moments. TNA, as we mentioned earlier in the show, they had a lot of interesting failures um, and then some really, really terrible failures to counteract that. All the while... Um, while the regular roster was still ticking over. Um, so, yeah, there was lots of peaks and valleys um, and there was too much inter-authority figure rivalries for me to favour them over WWE, even though, like I'd say, overall, TNA interests me more. Whether I really enjoyed it more than WWE is up for debate, and so that's why I had to go with a tie. Characters. Which promotion had the better character work and had the better individual characters all throughout our time? I felt like TNA tried to throw more characters out there and probably would have won had they not done it at the expense of some of their better characters and leaving the likes of Samoa Joe at home for the whole timeline. Um, 
it probably is a tie for me again, though I was probably skewing towards TNA just because they did bring a lot of big names in and try and get some star power onto their show. Whereas WWE, it was same old, same old, and they pushed on with people that I didn't enjoy. So probably it probably is a tie, but it was more, it was closer to TNA than it was to WWE, if that makes sense. I totally get you. Yeah. I also went with a tie. Um, I felt like overall TNA slightly had the edge in terms of utilising newer and fresher faces, even though initially some of those quote-unquote fresh faces were Hulkamania tour people who've been in the industry for decades and you know probably shouldn't have been wrestling at first. But yeah, they brought in some new people that I really enjoyed, even if the wheels kind of fell off their pushes closer to the end um wwe they gave some pretty great last hurrahs to a bunch of people i'm thinking in terms of batista and the undertaker and Shawn michaels and then you also had the miz and randy orton uh he wasn't really on raw but cm punk as well with the straight edge society they you know really made some important changes that helped their longevity out and helped them out for the future but i think one thing we we've not really mentioned yet about wwe this was the guest host gm era on raw and that took up a bunch of tv time um in particular the magruber episode was just absolutely foul it was bollocks Uh, i think it (laughs) yeah absolutely it did them no favors whatsoever um so they had that acting against it you you know they had all these other personalities other than wrestlers to feature um the only real standout for me was wayne brady i thought he really really you know he was the final host that we had and we went out on a bang really He, he he loved being there yeah, um, Wayne Brady was an entertaining episode for, for me, um, not just to watch but to record as well, so definitely I agree with that. On to our final category, match quality. Match quality. Who delivered in-ring most consistently during our time? I went with TNA. I just I enjoyed more TNA matches and could remember more TNA matches than I could WWE, which is crazy considering they had hands down my favorite match in taker and sean but aj styles always delivered um the motor city machine guns generation me um even the likes of matt morgan put on good matches kurt angle had a lot of good stuff when he wasn't facing ken anderson um wwe (laughs) just you know the guys that can go aren't allowed to go and the guys that are given the time and the you know the the freedom to do didn't deliver in a lot of instances i'm thinking the last man standing between batista and john cena of an example where a match got lots of time and storyline and it was crap when we watched it um they could have been giving more of this time to the likes of punk mysterio edge um anything like that you know even jack swagger was put in the matches that i didn't enjoy orton whilst his character was going okay turning face a lot of his matches were quite dull as well so yeah for me tna um they let more guys go out and have good matches and we reap the rewards we are in 100 percent 
100% agreement across all five categories here because I've also gone with TNA for match quality. It's this phenomenon that we talked about pretty close to the start of the episode. WWE rose to the occasion on the pay-per-views, but their television was just really pants and not really conducive for delivering good in-ring quality. TNA, um, for me throughout this time, they were the most likely show to provide something worthwhile in-ring. Hogan and Bischoff, even though they're getting their mitts on the company here, they really hadn't affected the work rate of all the people currently there to quite the extent that I expected. So, other than a couple of duds, there was usually something worthwhile watching in ring during TNA's TV shows. And I think, other than lockdown, really, they weren't harmed quite so badly in terms of their pay-per-view quality uh, as far as in-ring work goes. Um, so, yeah, I, I just... It's like I was saying earlier, in terms of gathering favourite matches, outside of the pay-per-views, it was pretty hard to pick WWE matches. TNA were littered with quality and performers who were very consistent and reliable in terms of giving you an interesting matchup. Yeah, I am. Um, it's not often we agree so strongly, but it's good to see that after putting all the shows into context, we, we did come to a pretty good outcome. And it's funny because like a lot of these categories and these awards, we didn't really pick the same people, but the overall trend, I guess, showed really where the winners were in each category. And I'm, I'm glad we got the outcome we did because I have to say overall, if... I had to just put the body of work from each company we watched head-to-head and pick my favourite, it would definitely be TNA. So I think that was a fair victory. It's just a shame that either, depending on how you look at it, they either went into battle too full-on or they didn't stay the course when they didn't win straight away because I think the shows they were putting on were good. I think there was an opportunity to grow their audience um, maybe a bit slower than what they wanted but make a big splash. And yeah, they could have been better off for this had they not reverse so quickly in my mind in my mind mm, i could see that yeah I, I found it thoroughly enjoyable looking back at this time um like i was saying a lot of the time tna was throwing shit at a wall and seeing what would stick that would often lead to some regrettable incidents but in general, if they had a failure, at least it was an interesting failure. WWE were very much in their comfort zone here and didn't really feel like excelling, I felt. So, overall, going over the our usual five categories, we've got TNA out as the winner with four wins to four ties to two losses. And, yeah, I'm with you, Lee. I think that even though we had lots of different ideas over the individual awards, I think that very much reflects my overall enjoyment and opinion on this time. I'm glad. It's good to be in agreement and not be debating. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, as we mentioned on our previous episode, we're going to have one last dive into the world of TNA and WWE head-to-head before we say goodbye to this time frame. We ran a Twitter poll over on my podcast's Twitter and Facebook page, and the winning pair of shows that came out of that were Hell in a Cell 2010 against Bound for Glory 2010. So, we're going to get lots of interesting stuff there. TNA's First chance to properly culminate something at their biggest show ever since Hulk arrived. And WWE, I'm sure they've got a bunch of stuff going on there. I'm, Particularly I'm, as it pertains to uh, the Nexus. <laughs> I'm Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to this. Um, I, th- I think it's going to be good to have one more pay-per-view hit out before we, we put a bow on this completely. So I've, um, I've really, really enjoyed this run. Um, not just watching the shows, but I think it's been really good. Um, you and I having these podcasts together, it's been really enjoyable for me. It's um, made doing this a lot more interesting and, and fun for myself. So first of all, thank you very much for, for joining me on this journey, Duncan. It's been an absolute pleasure for me. Um, but yeah, I think, Overall, we've watched some decent wrestling and we've had some enjoyable shows and it's good to have one more in the bag before we say goodbye to this little 2010 run. Right back at you, Lee. Yeah, um, this has been an absolute blast and uh, it's just always been nice just having another friend to talk about wrestling and, yeah, watching these things go at it head-to-head as well. Yeah. it's really done a lot in terms of figuring out what some of my perceptions were on this time and just, yeah, helping me appreciate a lot of stuff that I, I maybe didn't while I was a wrestling fan back then. It's been a blast and yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to the next pair of shows that our listeners picked. Um, there's an appropriate amount of distance from where we ended up on the timeline. So it'll be interesting to see what things have changed and what hasn't. And then, yeah, keep your eyes peeled. You might see more of us together in the future as well. Yeah, no spoilers, but we have been in discussions about a new run that we can go on and try and keep the the fun times rolling here. So I'm very much keen after we do this one to land on something and see what we can bring to you so once we finalize that we'll let you all know about that as well definitely yeah you'll hopefully hear more on the next episode um what's happening with you guys uh you and kyle specifically at the moment have you guys got any shows planned coming up uh anything in the pipeline right now Uh, we'll have to see if we can meet up at christmas really um we've not really had the chance to get up to much like I said, things have been moving pretty quickly as far as my new job goes. And Kyle's also been moving house. So we've had a lot going on. But yeah, um, check us out if you have a chance anyway. We're at TNW Podcast on Twitter. I still try and keep fairly active on there. Um, our last episodes were a pair of SummerSlam-themed episodes. Uh, one, SummerSlam 2002, which is my favourite SummerSlam. And two was this year's SummerSlam so go check those out if you haven't had the chance to already and you can if you want to relive some of the moments that we talked about in this TNA versus WWE storyline I've got a playlist on there of all of my guest appearances with Lee so you can deep dive into that 
Definitely, yeah. Um, I hope you guys come up with something soon because I definitely always enjoy listening to your show. But I, I've actually been meaning to try and twist Kyle's arm and get him to come and review a couple of shows with me at some point as well. So if you feel like going and giving Kyle some shit about Triple H and then maybe taking a breather and saying something nice, tell him to get pick himself some shows and come and debate his merits over on here with me. I'd love to... Ideally, I'd love to pick a show that's significant for Triple H just to make it more entertaining and enjoyable. But since I'm still in 96, I'm not sure there's anything that amazing coming up. So I'll have to, um, I'll just have to nail him down at some point and get him on here too. <laughs> well, you, you've, you've sailed right past the hog pet match, of course. I know. I, sh- I really didn't think that one through well enough. <laughs> awesome. Perfect. Well, that will do us for today. Thank you all for listening. As always, um, give us any feedback on Twitter. Get in touch with myself or Dunk um, at Rory's Nitro at then now whatever. Um, and yeah, have a good day. And I we will be speaking to you all again very soon. Cheers, everyone. Uh,